Welcome to the Open Div Summit, a four-day pod conference around spirituality and meaning-making in the modern world. Each day, February 25th to 28th, we'll be releasing 10 to 20 pre-recorded conversations with top academics, theologians, clergy, and secular community leaders. In addition, each day we're hosting several live, interactive events on Zoom. We'd love to see you there. For more, check out summit.opendiv.org. Today's conversation is with David G. Robertson. David is a lecturer in religious studies at the Open University and co-founder of the Religious Studies Project and co-editor of the journal Implicit Religion. I hope you enjoy our conversation. David, thanks so much for being here with us today. You are one of the co-founders and co-directors of the Religious Studies Project podcast and uh, have also published a book and have done a number of really interesting work. Uh, But today, I'm kind of really interested to talk with you about your research into conspiracy theories, UFOs, and how that relates to kind of religion, uh, new age spirituality, um, millennialism, if you were. But maybe just to start, for folks who are less familiar with your work, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, how did you come to study conspiracy theories? And can you kind of talk about that distinction between conspiracy theories and conspiracism that you talk about in your work? Yeah, no problem. Well, thanks for inviting me, first of all. It's really interesting to be speaking to a slightly different audience than my, uh, than my books get. Okay, so how did I get into this? Well, there's, there's two answers. There's the kind of answer from my life and there's the academic answer. The answer from my life would be that a long time ago, about 20 years ago, I was working in a recording studio and somebody left a copy of a Robert Anton Wilson book in the studio. And I was spending a lot of time just hanging around and I read this book, which looked very new agey to me. And indeed it was, but it, it talked about his experience of being contacted by what he thought might be an intelligence from Sirius um, or might be himself going insane or any number of other possibilities. But the book, it was a book called Cosmic Trigger from I think 78, something like that. And he went into conspiracy theories quite a lot in it, talking about the way that the entire book is really about the way that we can choose different models to interpret reality. And he uses conspiracy theories kind of as an example of this, of how we can connect a lot of different things together and make these narratives in our lives. And we can choose to think that, you know, one story's true or another story's true, or we can choose to believe that we're going insane or that we're being contacted by aliens or that it's really our, you know, our higher self or, you know, whatever. And I, I find this absolutely fascinating. And I got kind of into interested in the idea of conspiracy theories and things like uh, even sort of more related things like, uh, you know, like the Jack the Ripper mystery and the way that that's been interpreted in, in lots and lots of different ways. So, OK, so then fast forward like 10 years or so when I'm at university and I was studying at the University of Edinburgh and there was a course on. Uh, New Age Religion uh, under Dr. Stephen Sutcliffe. And in one of the readings, there was a mention of David Icke, who's a, a quite a well-known British conspiracy theorist. He's quite well-known in the States now as well, who had previously been quite a big figure in the New Age scene in the UK in the late 80s and early 90s, before becoming much more famous as a kind of conspiracy theorist later on. And it kind of reminded me of all the reading I'd done, you know, 10 years before, starting with Robert Anton Wilson and reading people like David Icke and, and lots of other kind of fairly well-known uh, conspiracy stuff. 
and I, I sort of thought, oh, that's interesting. Now, what is the connection there between the sort of conspiracy thinking and the new age thinking? They seem so very different at first, gl- at first glance. And so as I started reading into it, I, I went and read a lot about David Icke and I read a lot of his books trying to follow the chain of thought that led from, you know, from something that was very kind of based in theosophical thinking and early new age, very positive, very holistic, um, into something much more darker and conspiratorial and what a lot of people, you know, even think is kind of anti-Semitic in places. and that was really the start of it and that investigation proved to be so fruitful that I eventually wrote an entire book about it so yeah is that does that go far enough does I I can go further if you want but (laughs) that's great background and and I'm curious so for folks who who are kind of maybe like I think conspiracy theory is very in the popular media especially in in America these days with the rise of Trumpism and, and QAnon and all this but Maybe just to start, like, could you talk a little bit about what is a conspiracy theory, what defines it, and, and this kind of worldview that I think you, you kind of talk about in your book, about conspiracism, and then how does that relate to conspiracy theories and, and, and religion? Yeah, yeah it, it's not an easy question to answer, unfortunately. It's it, rather like religion. There's a lot of different ways of thinking about it, and what discipline you're coming from will affect that, and what your political position is will affect that, and... And it also changes. So things that were considered conspiracies at one point, some of them are no longer considered conspiracy theories. I mean, there are examples like uh, the Tuskegee syphilis experiments or Iran-Contra or the, you know, the drone campaign in the Middle East, things like this. And then there are things like, say, the satanic ritual abuse or the McCarthy hearings in the US, which we now see as being essentially conspiracy narratives, but they were never thought of as such at the time. In fact, they were widely kind of accepted. So it's a complicated thing. Um, A a simple working way of thinking about it would be that it's uh, a narrative that posits one or other group working in secret uh, towards some malevolent aim. But it's kind of problematic as because, as I said, all of those examples I just gave are examples of that, except many of them are true. And some of them um, were never considered conspiracy theories. They were things that people legislated on. An example of why, you know, how how complicated it is, is 9-11. So, there, you know, the from that simple definition we gave there of of conspiracy theory both the conspiratorial argument and the official argument are they both fit they they're both groups planning in secret something with a malevolent aim the thing is that we only refer to the one that isn't true as a conspiracy theory um with, just for listeners who may not be as familiar with some of the conspiracy around 911 could you just talk a little bit about what the kind of standard and conspiratorial uh right okay so yeah the official the official story being that it was planned by al-qaeda planned and carried out by al-qaeda and the conspiratorial one some or other variation that the american government either carried it out or were otherwise complicit in it and in both of those versions you have a group of people planning it in secret with a malevolent aim in mind uh, an end point if you like 
So, yeah, it's complicated. Um, some psychologists will point to specific kind of patterns of thought. Um, some philosophers will point to sort of particular logical problems. And that's certainly true to, to some degree, although it's very often overstated, in, especially in popular literature, the idea that anyone who accepts a conspiracy theory is irrational or paranoid or illogical or, you know, whatever. The problem is that all of those faults of logic and, you know, of jumping to conclusions and, uh, you know, ignoring evidence that doesn't suit the way that we see the world, we're all guilty of that um, in many, many ways. Most of our lives is not governed by purely logical thought. And we don't tend to put these same analyses on other groups. I mean, a very good example of that is... is um, you know, the way that most religious people view the world is based on exactly the same principles. All of this is to make the point that what we talk about as conspiracy theories is very often to do with identifying ideas that are seen as beyond the pale. They're kind of about power. They're about what we're allowed to think. And to stick with the 9-11 example, you know, George W. Bush's statement after 9-11 where he said, uh, let us not tolerate these ridiculous conspiracy theories. Right. It's, it's a perfect example. A conspiracy theory is the idea that you are not allowed to even really take seriously. Uh, and if you do, you clearly have something wrong with your thinking. You know, your, your, your right. thought is primitive or wrong in some way. That's kind of where I, I kind of need to stop there because we can we can go down a million rabbit holes from there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's interesting because it seems like almost to some degree the reason there's so much stigma around conspiracy theories is because we are all susceptible to them, right? And in some ways, perhaps that kind of stigma is is almost uh, you know it's almost like an inoculation against you know taking on <laughs> the matrix of thought. It is, but it's also at the moment to do with you know, right, thinking right, you know, what, how are you thinking? Right now, things are so polarized and there's such a move towards stigmatizing certain things in certain groups. And it's not coincidental, I think, that, you know, the term cult has reappeared and the term conspiracy theory has reappeared with a vengeance. It really is the case that uh, you know, 10 years ago, eight years ago, when I was working on this uh, for my PhD, people were very skeptical that there was any worth to what I was doing So whatsoever. They kept telling me how marginal it was and what's the point of studying a few, you know, a few mentally ill Americans? What's the point of this? And I kept telling them, no, you know, you're misunderstanding. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, everybody, everybody can see why that's important. But I think we tend to think in terms of there are more conspiracy theories now than there were, say, 10 years ago. But I think it's much more useful to think of it as we are much more concerned with defining what you're allowed to think now than we were 10 years ago. Because now, if you're on the other side, there's so much more at stake. And I think that's, the, you know, that's why this issue of, of right thinking is it's not just uh, a definitional issue. You know, it's not merely academic, as we say. It, it's really what the function, what the, the category is doing. Um, well, do you think that it's become more salient over time with kind of just the way communication has changed with the internet and other kind of forms of, of media, just like with a QAnon you know, supporter in Congress and all those, it seems at least in to the, the average American that 
these ideas or, or the, the influence is more kind of present than maybe it was in the past, or maybe just there was a lack of awareness around it. I, I suspect it's a lot of it is a lack of awareness. One thing that the internet has done is has made it so much easier to find this stuff. I mean, I suspect, and it's impossible to prove, but I suspect that all this stuff was always circulating in, you know, in pubs and, you know, in quiet chats and Masonic lodges or wherever people meet in private. I'm sure this stuff was going on, especially when there was alcohol involved. But um, like QAnon is a good example. Now, there's many reports about how, you know, this exponential explosion of, of uh, in QAnon but it, it's so much more complicated than that. I mean, the the, the polling that Joe Yusinski, Joseph Yusinski from uh, University of Miami has been doing on QAnon since, I think, at least 2018 anyway, it shows very little growth in people who would agree to the statement, I believe in QAnon. You know, I believe that there is a person called Q who's an insider and it's really, it's very low. It's It's stayed around 6% the entire time. Now, as a point of comparison, in, I think it was 2000 and, it was about 2008, there was a Pew survey which showed that 4% of Americans agreed with the statement that some of the members of, of Congress were reptilians. You know, the David Icke thing, right? So that shows, it's only two, you know, that's 50% larger than that, then Q, QAnon is only 50% larger than that, if we're to believe statistics. And of course, there's so many problems with that, which is a, you know, that's for somebody else to, to be interviewed on. Right, right. Um, but what also happened was that the entire world went online, including journalists. So suddenly, every news story was either what, what are people doing about, about um, COVID or what have we? What are they talking about on Twitter? Right. And so the story began to uh, began to sort of, you know, it gained legs by people looking for it. And as soon as it began to be reported, then what happens is that people go and look for it. If you actually look at a lot of the reports that are giving the larger numbers, like you know, like twenty percent of people are are involved in QAnon conspiracies. Usually what they're, they, they're saying is that it's some or other belief that is in some way connected with QAnon if you go far enough into it. Now, it's a well-known thing about conspiracy culture that they're all linked together. Um, so, for instance, the idea that an elite group of people in the government are, you know, abusing children. Uh, well, that idea has been around since at least 1990, if not earlier. So there's nothing new about that, but just um, because QAnon is the current kind of uh, umbrella term under which a lot of the conspiracy narratives have coalesced for this short period of a couple of years, yeah. that suddenly anybody who is involved, who has ever accepted that idea, which has always been a, you know, a, a, an undercurrent, is now one of the people who believes QAnon-related uh, conspiracies, right? Yeah. There are bots amplifying it. That's probably not as big a big an aspect of it as some would say, but it's certainly an aspect. There's also people who will just suddenly start putting, you know, the where we go one, we go all hashtag on relatively unrelated things because it's the popular term, much as in the way that 2012, you know, that was only eight years ago, but the way that that suddenly captured everybody's attention just for that year or so 
to the point that there were Hollywood movies being made about it, which is, you know, there hasn't been a Q movie yet, as far as I'm aware. And the 2012 was about an apocalyptic kind of prophecy or conspiracy, is that right? Yeah, so it was it was the idea that the Mayan long count calendar, the end of the Mayan calendar was actually going to be some sort of millenarian event, whether, you know, apocalyptic or new age. But it, again, it's... It, it, there were a few different threads that went back 20 odd years started to come together about the year 2000 and by 2012 as i said you know there were literally thousands of books on the subject it had taken in everything from far right conspiracies to left leaning kind of new age people to mainstream kind of christian writers were involved in it as well there were hollywood movies being made about it it was incorporated into the x files which had been going like 10 years at that point mm-hmm. um and then it just kind of disappeared because obviously nothing happened so these you know these narratives come and go and they their nature is to sort of absorb a lot of other narratives and coalesce you know much like the way that there are always indie bands, but every so often there's a little scene and everybody calls them by that name for a few years. Interesting. So, and I'm curious, you know, you said towards the beginning that you studied some of like David Icke's, like, I guess, early writing and some of his influences and theosophy mm-hmm. and all this. I'm curious, is there some kind of pattern or archetype to how these ideas progress? Is it very much like a potpourri or a collage of existing kind of narratives that someone gets you know, dives into and then starts kind of innovating within? Or is there, yeah, is, and, and I guess do the folks who are kind of starting these or leading these movements, is there a sense that these are all true believers of what they're putting out? Or is there, because I think on the on the in mainstream America, there's often the sense of, oh, this must be a conspiracy in and of itself to control, you know, like, or to, to kind of sway the population towards different political ends. But yeah. Yeah, those are two really good questions. I'll try and answer both, but I, I might go off down a rabbit hole so call me back if i forget right, one right. half of it right so there's the there's the question of sort of true believers and and uh, entrepreneurs if you like right and then there's the question of the different ways they get into it okay so i think i can answer them both at the same time right so i have met quite a lot of different conspiracy people and also like alien abduction people as well as a lot of members of new religions and things over the years. And my experience has been that I think the vast majority of them are, if not true believers, then genuine seekers. So I'm not going to say that they all 100% believe all of the ideas in in the the circles that they're in. And it depends on the circle. But the vast majority of them either do or they're sincerely exploring those ideas right in the idea of seekership and exploring different ideas and seeing what works so i'll give you an example at the the whitley striber meetings i went to there were plenty of people there who would say to me you know i don't necessarily go in for all the sort of millennial stuff i'm much more interested in the ufo stuff Mm. but I find this group of people to be very open-minded and I can discuss with them and talk through the ideas and I hear things that I wouldn't hear anywhere else. Yeah, did you have a question there? Well, yeah, maybe could you just, uh, for, for people who may not be familiar, what is the Whitley Stryber? The Whitley Stryber was the author of a book called Communion, which came out, I think, 1986 or 1987. And it was really the, it wasn't the first abduction account, but it was the first big 
account that got a lot of media attention and really kicked off the whole idea of kind of grey aliens coming into your house and, you know, taking you up to spaceship and giving you probes and, you know, recovered memories and all that stuff that we know from lots and lots of movies. So it became it became part of the the zeitgeist very, very quickly. And it's now really the dominant kind of narrative in in UFO fiction, at least. Um, it utterly replaced Little Green Men in physical flying saucers stopped and then suddenly now they're greys. It was, you know, within a few years of that book coming out. Mm-hmm. So I went to an event in 2012 in Nashville where Whitley and a few other kind of big figures from the UFO world, the conspiracy world. It was like a like a seminar. They gave papers and people discussed, and there was there was fifty or sixty people there, um, and I was there as a sort of participant observer. I mean, they knew I was they knew that I was a scholar and everything, but I was just in the audience and taking part. So you had you had on the one hand Whitley, who's primarily a uh, you know known as an alien abduction person but then you had Jim Mars who at the time was most famous for he co-wrote a book on JFK that was one of the one of the sources for for Oliver Stone's film JFK mm. and then you had other people there like um, Marla Freese who was a you know she's a, a medium a transformative spiritualist medium so there was you know the whole gamut from kind of quite you know what we'd think of as conspiracy culture and um, in Jim Mars and then alien abduction which is something else and then real kind of new age healing and holistic stuff at the other end and yet they were they wouldn't have all agreed on everything but there were some things they agreed on and there were particular questions that they were they were all sort of exploring together um there certainly are people that I don't necessarily that I think are in some way in it for the money. But there's a tendency, I think, to think of the idea that somebody might be uh, making money out of it to necessarily imply that they're dishonest. And I don't think that's necessarily fair. You know, people have to make a living. And if you can make a living doing, you know, talking about kind of your spiritual quest, then I think a lot of us would do that. However, there are there are a few people that I've come across that I suspect are you know, certainly embellishing the truth, if not outright making it up. But most people, it it, it depends if you look into their background. I mean, take David Icke, because he's somebody whose, you know, biography I know very well, or, or, you know, Whitley Stryber as well. But David Icke got into it because of two things. One, because he had really bad rheumatoid arthritis very early, and he was seeking relief for that. So he went to a spiritualist healer. And that caused him to question certain aspects of a predominantly kind of materialist worldview. And that is actually a surprisingly common driver of, you know, into alternative beliefs of whatever kind, you know, conspiratorial or kind of new age. And indeed, it's one of the biggest areas that they cross over. Um, so if it's not at all surprising to me how quickly and how widespread kind of the vaccine covid vaccine conspiracies are because anything that's to do with medical and health it is you're immediately you only have to look up you know 
is the vaccine safe and you're going to come across this stuff. It's right. always been the way. There, there's other sort of ways into it. Um, I mean, I think certainly back in the 90s, early 2000s, and more in the sort of Christian right-wing, you know, libertarian world, the kind of world that Timothy McVeigh and people like that were in, you're more likely to get the conspiratorial material first and be led into the new agey stuff. Right, right. Um, and if you're in the new agey world, you're more likely to go the other way around. In fact, uh, Jim Mars actually said that to me. I, I got on quite well with, with Jim. And he, I, you know, I said to him, are you surprised to see so much conspiracy theory material in this kind of new age world? And he said, no, it's the other way around. I'm, I'm surprised to see all this uh, new age stuff in the conspiracy world because he, he was writing and, you know, he came up in the, the 60s after JFK and mm. it, it started off as concern over dishonesty in the government and that there was the government was covering things up. And that led into him questioning, well, why are they covering things up? What's their ultimate aim? So he got to the sort of, oh, there's a vast cover up to control humanity that way. Whereas there's somebody like David Icke starts the other way around. He starts with what's wrong with the spiritual world and is led into, oh, the governments are all corrupt and they're covering things up. But in the book, uh, UFOs, Conspiracies and the New Age, I focused on the way that UFOs were often the thing that would take you from one world to the other, if you like, you know, from from a new age world into the more sort of right wing conspiracy stuff or the other way around. But health is also a major, a major driver. And it, I mean, big, big pharma, the idea that that our health is being deliberately kind of manipulated or controlled by big business is one of the one of the biggest ones and probably the biggest one of all at the moment. And yeah, it's really interesting. I was talking with another one of our uh, speakers, Brad Onishi, the other day about the limits of, of rationalism and how kind of there's been a modern trend in some you know, atheist or non-theist circles to kind of explore wonder and to like explore, bring in mystery to, to kind of a, a secular worldview and just recognizing that rationalism in and of itself can be treated as this kind of like almost omnipotent force that people kind of ascribe to it. And it seems like almost with some of the stuff you're describing around health, it's like a visceral experience of the limits of modern medicine or rationalism of not being able to treat some kind of disease. And then that opens up maybe a whole kind of, you know, exploration into, well, if rationalism and, and modern science and all this can't heal this one thing and, and perhaps other things can, then, you know, where, where else might these limits be? Right? Well, that's exactly right. Yes. That's, that's the whole point is that, in all of these cases, you know, like, you know, for Ike, so he tried lots and lots of things. And finally, it was a, a spiritualist medium that worked for his arthritis. So that caused him to broaden his epistemology and go, right, OK, well, if this works and this didn't, then what else might work that I've never, you know, taken seriously before? The same with UFOs. You know, well, Whitley Stryber is a is a fairly... I mean, he he's he's kind of a he was kind of a religious seeker in certain ways. He was involved in Catholicism and also in Gurdjieff stuff. If you read uh, Communion, even the even the ter the word of it there has is rich with religious symbolism, right? But he it, it is clearly an experience that that opens his mind to to possibilities that he'd never uh, considered before. But I think the idea of the way that you're sort of talking about rationalism and, you know, disenchantment and that kind of Weberian idea that on the one hand, you've got religion and that's where we get meaning in the world. And on the other hand, there's the, the 
you know, the iron cage of rationality. I mean, I think it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a shibboleth. It's, it's this idea that it was part of the modernity project in the, the middle of the 20th century, but it's really not the way that those of us working on contemporary religion outside of studying specific modern traditions are, are, are looking at things. I mean, the idea that because one doesn't accept the existence of a God, that therefore your life is devoid of meaning is, it's a big jump to make. And also I think the, the, the idea that outside of religious and spiritual ideas that our lives are governed by rationality is also not the reality. I mean, for one, you know, if I switch on my computer, I've not done any science. I know it works because somebody handed it to me. I mean, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm trusting what somebody else told me, but that's not science. That's just, you know, it's just tradition. I know it works when I switch it on. I couldn't fix it. And, you know, the vast majority of our lives is based on even, even devoid of any religious, I mean, practices or beliefs or anything, you're still existing largely day to day on tradition and experience. And you, you, very little of it is, is scientific rationality. I mean, I'm using the outcome of, of scientific rationality, but I'm not myself doing it. So the idea that that our lives are kind of one or the other, I, I think is much, much too simple. And things like the way that, you know, alien abduction or conspiracy theories or, you know, crystals or acupuncture or any of these things are somehow in the middle of those two kind of shows how messy that is. I mean, I think maybe there are people at either end of the pole, but the vast majority of us is is the messy middle, if you like. You know, the, the grey area is probably all there is. Well, and I know you've you've mentioned in other kind of settings that you got you've gotten some flack for studying this in the religious studies context, and you know I'm I'm curious. You know, you've mentioned that uh, in as much as some of these conspiracy beliefs have kind of maybe beliefs in supernatural beings or just kind of general belief systems about the world, they kind of can look in some ways like new religious movements or can be studied by some of the same methods. Uh, I'm curious. You know, I know you've done a lot of ethnographic work. Do these movements and communities and ideologies also have some of these other kind of trappings of religion, like ritual, like, you know, like temples, if you will, like mythology, ethics? Yeah. Does it kind of, yeah. Yeah, yeah, good. You asking me that has reminded me that I never actually got to conspiracism right at the beginning. So maybe I can tie that in. Yeah, I started uh, talking about conspiracism in terms of trying to think of these kind of conspiracy beliefs, or at least some of the ideas in terms of a worldview, if you like, a way of seeing the world that had kind of other agencies, like hidden forces at work. And in doing that, I began to sort of see, okay, well, there are some similarities with religion here then. I mean, in both cases, you have this appeal to... I use I use the term agents just so that I don't have to specify like a god or you know a group of people, the Illuminati or whatever. But it's it's a hidden agent working towards some endpoint, somehow controlling events from behind the scenes. And when you put it like that, it looks very much like a religion. 
at least in you know a, a religious worldview. Let's put it that way. You know, like um, the way that a religious person, broadly speaking, might see the world. I immediately got the question. Ah, but the difference is that one's malevolent and one's benevolent, right? So there were some people were upset that I might compare, you know, the Illuminati trying to kill everyone to a benevolent God. But right. and I see that, but ultimately it's always a matter of, of um, which side you're on. If you're in the side of one of the tribes that's getting killed by Jehovah, you might not be so keen on the plan that he's following, right? And likewise, you know, the Illuminati probably think what they're doing is for the best, right? That's the old thing about the Nazis, right? I know it's... Uh... The, the point being, though, that the moral position and the, of whether the end plan is good or bad really is, is a matter of perspective. So I, do, I, I don't know that that's necessarily the case. And anyway, plenty of people are quite happy to imply that religions that aren't their own are, are wrong in some way. So in terms of the more kind of, what's the word for it? The, the um, institutional aspects of religion, not so much. In that respect, it's much closer to the kind of looser structures that we see in say the new age. So small groups, maybe coming to, you know, larger groups coming together for specific events, like, you know, like the David Icke events that in London in 2012, or the Whitley Stryber event that I went to, or the traditional kind of new age fair, you know, where you have the different stalls and different groups, and maybe people come and give presentations, that kind of stuff. You have the kind of looser networks which used to be newsletters and latterly are, you know, internet groups. Right. Probably social media now, but they, they, you know, that function has long been there, especially in, but that, that's, is a sort of structure closer to say, um, like the Alcoholics Anonymous was in, say, yeah. in the, the late 50s or early 60s, you know, more of a, you can you could call it a movement, even even you know like um, you know early feminist groups, for instance, women's liberation kind of groups. These looser, organized groups of small, you know, people spread out, but a lot of communication between them. Um, well, yeah, go ahead. Well, and I, I wonder is do you think there's something about the fact that there's you know these groups or these movements are founded on this conspiracy about institutions and people in power that makes them less likely to be institutionalized and mean and maybe even people who are like kind of have had negative experiences in institutions are drawn to the more like non-hierarchical or quasi-anarchic kind of structures of, of the new age yeah absolutely it's the same problem that the left the political left has um when you've got a resistance to the right is predicated on the idea that there are tr the traditional structures and practices de facto give society meaning and purpose, right? So somebody on the right is automatically predisposed to towing the line and to some degree subsuming their individuality into a larger social structure. Now the left is the, is the opposite of that, which is why the left has always struggled to form movements in the same degree, because they stress the individual over the societal structure. And so, yes, that does tend to be the case. But also, um, as you say, the conspiracy world is more based in a suspicion of all kinds of institutions and authority. So, but I don't know if that is necessarily the reason 
that there won't be larger organizational structures. I think the reason for that is because there isn't a consensus. Mm-hmm. And to go back to the to the QAnon thing, you have moments where groups with very different agendas will come together. Um, so QAnon is one example. 2012 is another example. So QAnon, you could find these very, you know, the Galactic Federation New Age people who are in psychic communication with extraterrestrials. Mm-hmm. You can find the, the guns and gold, you know, libertarians. You can find the otherwise completely non-conspiratorial suburban housewife who's deeply, deeply concerned that the children at her school are being preyed upon by pedophiles, right? Most of the time, these people have nothing in common, but if there's a certain cause, a narrative, or an idea that they can coalesce around, you get these little bubbles, like QAnon was the most recent one, 2012 before that, the millennium back in 2001, the, you know, the new age itself in the, in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, there have always been these kind of they're often millennial events, but not always. Uh, there, but there's some sort of idea that brings that they can coalesce around, right? And then, and then it'll dissipate when they're when that's not a cause anymore. As I said, you know, like the the organized pedophilia thing has been going at least since the 1980s. Became a big thing in the 90s and 2000s because the for a lot of reasons, but partly because of public panic about new technologies, partly because um, some more sort of fundamentalist pastors had a lot of power in government. There were a lot of reasons, but it you know, became so coalesced that it became like a government, an official narrative of governments and universities. Mm. Now it's, then it disappeared, for, went underground for 20 years, and now it's, you know, it's back. But those people have always been there. It's just whether we were paying them attention. And it's easier to pay them attention when there's an idea that we, as scholars or journalists or, or just the public, can look for and see, like, you know, like QAnon. So I, I don't think there is ever going to be a consensus on it. Right, right. Well, and so this reminds me a little bit of this, this idea you put forth in your book as well, of epistemic capital and, and how that is maybe like an attractive reason to explore these ideas and disagree with mainstream. Could you talk just a little bit about what that is? Yeah, sure. So the idea of epistemic capital is that there are different ways of gaining knowledge. There are different kinds of knowledge, if you like. So if I cite a scientific journal paper, or if I say, this is what the Bible says, or if I say that I had a vision in a dream which told me such and such, each of these is a way of gaining authority. It's a way of convincing other people that what I'm saying has authority and should be believed. But they're very different. So, you know, one is based in scientific materialism, scientific rationality. One is based in traditional religious authority, and the other one is based in, you know, in a channeled message or or a personal experience, whichever way you want to call it. And so when I started researching this stuff and people would at the time, people tended to talk about conspiracy theories being anti-scientific. And it became quite clear quite quickly that it wasn't anti-scientific. It's just that science was relativized within a larger epistemic framework. 
And this isn't in itself unusual. Lots and lots of scientists are also religious and they either find, they find ways of dealing with that so that there's no, you know, cognitive dissonance. Usually they will separate certain aspects are to do with their religious beliefs and certain other things are explainable by science or they'll say that the religious aspect is to do with morality and this you know this is to do with the physical world and what i realized was that this uh, in this conspiratorial world there were people people were using science alongside channeled messages alongside religious authorities and they would so you would get david dyke citing you know scientific papers as well as his own channeled messages as well as passages passages from the bible or the vedas or you know mayan mythology all to create the they create the idea that he is drawing from more sources of knowledge than than the people who are listening to him right so he's he's a knowledge he's an he's he's gaining all of this capital in knowledge but in different ways i realized that that's what these people were doing they're not necessarily prophets in the sense that they're always channeling information or receiving information from a deity they're the the way that they achieve capital in the field to use you know the the sociological terminology is to appeal to all of these different kinds of knowledge. And that's kind of where my research is going now is in seeing if we can apply this model. Because I think that, you know, the supposedly secular people, the supposedly religious, the supposedly entirely materialistic, in all of these cases, we're all appealing to different sources of epistemic authority all the time. We're mixing, we're jumping from one to the other when it, you know, when it suits us really. Right. Uh, and religions, uh, political ideologies, conspiracy beliefs, personal rituals, all of these things are being mixed and all of us are mixing these things in different ways in knowledge that's received and authorized in different ways. And I think that's a really challenging model for uh, thinking about the idea of disenchantment and modernity. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, and it seems so interesting because if two people have two very different epistemologies, you know, ways of understanding how knowledge is created and is, is uh, I guess, rigorous or valid. Uh, it's hard to have a conversation where either can convince the other, right? One piece of data might split and be both feel it's supportive of both ends, right? Right, absolutely. But understanding that all of us are, we don't all have different epistemologies. We all have multiple and overlapping epistemologies that are working at all times. If we could, for instance, use the idea of epistemic capital to understand better where the justification for certain ideas is coming from, we might be able to get to the core thing that we disagree about, right? So if I'm speaking to somebody coming from a very, say, right-wing conservative Christian position, I'm going to be struggling to find common ground. But if we can get to the fact that, okay, so you have a source of authority that's coming from essentially a channeled source or religious tradition, and I don't accept that one, then we can stop just repeating that fact at each other and talk about the things that that we probably do have in common that then stem from those, you know, so we can understand the epistemic 
differences, then we can we can take those off the table and focus on the, the, the common ground that results from those positions. Rather than assuming that everything that follows from that we do live in different epistemic worlds, right? Because we don't. We live in worlds in which all of these epistemic authorities and all of this capital is overlapping and competing all the time. So the more we understand that, I think, the more we can establish uh, the things that we do have in common and find ways of speaking to each other. Right, right. It's almost like finding the epistemic fork. Like, where, where, where does it eventually go off into? Yeah, right. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, so okay, maybe we don't agree on religious traditions, but maybe we agree on the importance of other, you know, other forms of tradition, for instance, you know, appeals to like um, the importance of getting married or some, you know, some not, uh, you know, just a social tradition that's passed or, you know, celebrating, you know, summer holidays or whatever, things that everybody does. And we can go, okay, so actually, you know, there is, we are operating in the same epistemology, just slightly different ways. Right, right. Well, David, I, I see we're about out of time and I know we got a hard stop today. So I just want to say thank you again so much for, for hopping on. This has been a really, really fascinating conversation. Definitely a wealth of, of interesting knowledge, interesting in facts in your book. If folks are looking to kind of learn more about you, about your work you're currently doing, other projects, where should they go? Um, well, the, the quickest, easiest way would be to follow me on Twitter. That's at D underscore G underscore Robertson. And from there, you can get links to my, you know, my work at the Open University or where I'm publishing and what I'm publishing uh, there. Or you can look for either my monograph, UFOs, Conspiracy Theories in the New Age, or the Handbook of Contemporary Religion and Conspiracy Theories, which came out a couple of years ago. If you want to go down this rabbit hole, <laughs> that's the book to get. That'll keep you going for the rest of 2021. <laughs> Amazing. Thanks for inviting me, Casey. It's been great. Thanks for coming. Thanks for listening to this conversation from the OpenDiv Summit. For more, check us out at summit.opendiv.org.